0: Hello, happy new year and welcome to 2022's very first edition of It's Your Money, the Mayer Brand Sword podcast. My name's Andrew Harrison and as ever we're joined by Andy Mayer. Hello Andy Mayer, how are you? I'm very well, how are you Andrew? I'm all right, I'm not bad. How, how was your Christmas? Very
1: good, unfortunately just past about the 27th I developed Covid so I feel like I've got a special badge now like with the rest of the world I've had Covid.
0: There you go, well you know you must have been naughty. Santa brought the wrong thing. I hope you get well soon. So, today we're going to be looking ahead at the financial landscape of the new year, and we've got two special guests for us, don't we, Andy?
1: We do. We have the top gun of the airline industry, Mike and Dan. They are maverick and goose of the investment world.
0: (laughs) Okay. So, that's Dan Kemp, Global Chief Investments Officer of the Investment Fund Morningstar. Hello, Dan. Hello,
2: gentlemen. I've never been called either Maverick or Goose before. That's uh, <laughs> I, I'm not going to say which one I, uh, I adhere to most closely, but so it's, uh, it's lovely to be with you today.
0: And also, we have Morningstar's Chief Investment Officer for Europe, Middle East, and Africa, Mike Coop. Hiya, Mike. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Delightful to be here. Are you comfortable with the Top Gun analogy? <laughs> Well, oh, I think it's a pretty tough one to live up to, but we'll see what we can do. <laughs> so before we look at the big themes to look out for this year, um, many of our listeners will have heard of Morningstar, be familiar with it. Well, for those who don't, what is Morningstar? How are you different from other research companies? What is your thing and your USP? So why don't I kick off trying to answer that? And and, and Mike, then you, you'll correct me.
2: <laughs> well, I've missed something obvious. Um, so, so I think the... With Morningstar, the first thing to, to know about us is, is that we're a, a global organization. Uh, I think we're in 29 countries now around the world. We started in Chicago over 35 years ago, and uh, we now have about 9,000 people. And the, the focus of the business is really straightforward. Our role is to help investors reach their goals. And that we do that in a whole variety of different ways. So uh, part of it is collecting uh, data on financial instruments, again, around the world, and all types of financial instruments. Uh, second is providing research. So we provide research to uh, end investors through websites that we have, but also uh, research to uh, professional investors, uh, whether it be on on funds or shares or bonds, uh, or even how sustainable uh, a company is. And then thirdly, we manage investments. Uh, And so unlike other research companies which just provide research, we actually manage portfolios. and, And currently, We look after over $200 billion around the world, mainly, of course, in the US, that's that's the biggest market, but uh, across many different countries as as well. And and really, most of those assets are individual investors who are working with their financial advisor to uh, reach their financial goals. So we support great advisors like Andy uh, in the work that they do.
0: Fantastic. Well, I mean, you're definitely well-placed to help us with what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be looking ahead at the economy in 2022. What is coming down the line? How should we prepare for it? How should we think in terms of personal investments about what's going to happen? We've been getting a lot of conflicting predictions over over the Christmas and New Year period. The FT's annual survey uh, of economists warned that political uncertainty and Brexit are likely to make Britain's recovery from the pandemic slow. Some analysts are even predicting a recession could be in for a year of the squeeze so firstly dan and mike what if it's possible to give an overall prediction of the economy this year and where it's going and what that's going to mean for investors how would you put it in a nutshell i think we what we've learned over a long period of time
3: is that each year people make predictions at the start of the year and when we look back to see how accurate those predictions were we usually find that there's been quite a few surprises that have happened, and the predictions don't turn out to be tremendously reliable. So, when we come to think about what investors should do, you know, we try to consider the range of possible outcomes that seem likely, and in doing that, we obviously have to start with what the situation is at the moment. So, if I was to look at the situation at the moment, um, which is obviously on the front pages and people are reading about, they know that interest rates have gone up in December, albeit by a tiny amount here in the UK. They know that inflation has already gone up. They know that we are in the midst of another uh, outbreak of of COVID cases, which has led to some extra restrictions. And we can see that here, we can see that in, in Europe, we can see it in many countries. So those things are somewhat already with us. We also know that the government has ended up spending loads of money trying to support the economy as it came out of um, the COVID lockdowns. And we're starting from a position where things uh, are certainly much closer to normal than they were 18 months ago with the recovery. So those things are all known. Of course, looking at 2022, you know, there's a range of different outcomes there, but probably we could say it's more likely than not that over the next period of time, it could be six months, it could be 18 months, three years, interest rates are more likely to go up than down. The Bank of England, um, very helpfully, has just produced its update on inflation, which was pretty high in the November number, which was released in December. And it was it was quite far above the 2% limit that they're targeting. And so they had to write a letter to Rishi Shunek saying, basically, here's why it's so high. This is what we think caused it. This is what we think the future is. And this is what we think we might do about it. But bottom line boiled down to, you know, quite a few factors that we don't think are going to continue to push inflation up. And so we don't want to overreact but we probably are going to need to raise rates a bit. So that's one thing I think that you can probably look at as something more likely than not to happen.
0: Can you tell us a bit more about why inflation is rising so precipitously at the moment? I mean, we saw a prediction it might even reach 7% by the end of the year in the times, which we haven't seen since about 1990. What are the, what are the pressures making this happen? Are they just UK pressures or is it a global thing? Yeah, that's a really, really good, uh, really good question. So it's worth just stepping back a
3: bit to see what's happened with inflation over the last couple of years to kind of put this in perspective. So if you go back to the situation we were all in, in about April, May 2020, the lockdown had happened, people were stopping spending money, prices in some cases were actually falling, and inflation was very low. We then had, because of the COVID, lot of manufacturing companies couldn't make stuff because of the lockdowns. We also had some restrictions and some one-off things like, believe it or not, big ships being stuck in the Suez Canal, which had quite large unintended consequences in terms of supply bottlenecks. So we had these bottlenecks, these shortages of supply. And then when the economies reopened later in 2020, suddenly demand came back with a vengeance as economies reopened. And of course, at that time, the governments had also thrown loads of money at supporting the economy with furlough schemes and with extra additional spending and very low interest rates. So we had this combination of a shortage of stuff being produced, shortage of supply and bottlenecks because of a lockdown. And then we had this globally synchronized, huge recovery in demand. And of course, that pushed up prices of everything everywhere. So we started to see that ripple through last year. And then this year, it's been a bit different this year, well, I say this year, this is the last six months, what we've seen is energy prices starting to have much more of an impact. And that's, again, something you need to kind of just step back and look at what's happened. And remember, that oil prices were minus $20 back in, in March last year, uh, in 2020. So when you then look at oil prices today, which are around about $80,
0: um, of course, that's a tremendous increase. Dan, can I ask you to bring it round to personal investments, which is, of course, the core of what we're talking about. What should personal investors be doing in a, an environment of rising and uh, you know, very high potential inflation?
2: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. And the, the first thing to say, uh, uh, when we think about the impact of inflation is to remember that from our perspective or from the personal investor's perspective, uh, inflation measures the rate of change of prices, not the absolute change. And that, that's really important because uh, if we uh, have a, a sudden surge in, in prices and, and might just describe the reasons behind that, if If that surge suddenly stops, then inflation goes back to zero. So uh, inflation only stays high if we have a continued gain in prices. If the value of the the pound in our pocket uh, continues to to fall uh, through con- the, the pressures that uh, that Mike described, so that's that's the, the the first thing to think about. That inflation can subside very quickly, uh, not because things are getting uh, worse necessarily, but, but or not because prices are falling, but just because they're not going going up any anymore. And so so be aware that the outlook for inflation and, and actual inflation can change pretty quickly. And so that speaks to the uncertainty of the, the future. As an investor, the great temptation is that we're too confident in terms of what the uh, the outlook can bring. And we, we settle into this idea that we're bound to have high inflation, we're bound to have continued interest rate pressure. Now, in, in reality, of course, there's a whole range of outcomes, again, as, as Mike previously described. And the important thing for an investor is that you have a robust portfolio. Think of it as a being live on a boat. Uh, if everyone's on a on a boat, all crowds to one side of the boat. Uh, it's likely to, to tip over uh, and may even capsize. And so with a with a boat, the weight distribution is incredibly important. It's the same with a portfolio. Uh, you need to be able to overcome different market conditions, market surprises as well by having a variety of assets in your portfolio. And so often people get too confident, too focused, and forget that the environment can change very quickly. And inflation is a great example of that. So as we think about the portfolios that we manage, of course, Mike is responsible for all of our portfolios in this part of the world. So he can uh, speak to it much better than I can we're not just focused on on one outcome, but a range of outcomes. There's some things in the portfolios that are likely to do well if there's a high level of of inflation. Uh, But equally, if inflation uh, disappears, then there's other aspects of the portfolio likely to do do well as well. So again, the the importance from the individual investor's point of view is always to think about how robust your portfolio is. And and, and that's exactly where uh, either an investment manager or, or particularly a financial advisor can help you build a portfolio that's not just geared for a single act. So Mike, can you tell us a bit about that then?
0: What sorts of areas do you think investors ought to be looking at in this inflationary environment? You talked about the cost of fuel and energy. Where are the areas that you're looking at that are fruitful? So what we've observed over a long period of time is, is that the point
3: in time when investors and everyone are most concerned about inflation, it's usually too late to buy assets which generally do better in high inflation environments and that's because everyone is basically of the view well I think there'll be high inflation I want to buy assets I think are going to do better in a high inflation environment, and they pay more for those assets so what that tends to mean is that those assets generally already reflect the expectation of high inflation so even if you get high inflation the assets won't really go up much more in price because everyone already expects that to happen. You kind of then have to have to have another move up in inflation. And when you've had inflation already pick up to the levels we've seen, then that's fairly unlikely to happen. So the way we operate is we're long-term valuation-driven investors. What we're looking for is things that we think offer the best value in a variety of different scenarios. And what we found, interestingly enough, is that around about, The worst time in the COVID crisis, you know, sort of uh, March, April, May 2020, at that time, all investors thought there was only ever going to be one scenario and that was going to be a recession and inflation was going to be really low. We might even get prices falling. That was the time for you to buy the sort of assets that people think about as insurance for high inflation like things like inflation-linked bonds. So we were actually exposed um, and wanted to add to those types of investments because they offered such great value. They were so cheap that they were going to give good returns almost in any scenario. Now, as we've observed the shifts in the economy over the last 18 months and people's expectations have shifted from, oh, I'm worried about recession to, oh, I'm worried about inflation. They've gone through and bid up many of those sort of assets to levels that mean your future returns probably aren't going to be great. One of the few areas where we can still see some potential for some of the uh, shares uh, in energy companies where um, people have still discounted heavily the future. And our own work suggests they've discounted it far too heavily. So that's one area. We also have identified emerging market bonds as an area that investors have become too pessimistic. And so we favor that uh, in portfolios. We think UK shares are also pretty unloved buy global markets and remain at levels that are much more attractive. Those are things in our portfolios that we've identified as attractive. We think that they can help portfolios. The other thing we've identified is that the pound uh, had risen against a few currencies and that had made foreign currencies a little more attractive. And they're also often quite good to have in your portfolio if we get Brexit flowing through into inflation that is pretty specific to the UK. And we don't see that inflation in other countries. Because when you get inflation being much higher in the UK than overseas, what usually follows is the pound falls. So having some foreign currency tends to be a good thing to have to to bolster you against
0: that scenario. You mentioned the unprecedented state of the energy market, particularly personal energy suppliers. Mine's gone bust. I don't know if yours did. I mean, pretty much everybody seems like their their suppliers gone bust this year. I'd like to ask, what is the market for you know personal suppliers going to be like when it emerges from this mess? I and mean, and what does that mean for personal investors? Is the day of challenger brands and uh, you know deals being offered left, right, and centre are they gone, and we're back to just big suppliers?
3: Well, it's a bit like a pendulum that swings from one end to the other, depending on what people are seeing in terms of the industry and what the government response is. So it wasn't all that long ago that we didn't have a lot of choice in terms of who we wanted to use for for heating our homes. And the government response back then was to try and introduce more competition. Well, (laughs) we got that competition, but many of the suppliers weren't really set up to deal with extreme circumstances. So now we're obviously going back towards the situation that was in before with the larger players who can uh, perhaps better place to withstand extreme conditions are the ones left standing and they will inevitably end up having to recover costs. There'll be less choice um, and probably some, some prices will go up compared to what would have otherwise been the case. I think at the end of the day, there's a gravity that we can't defy, which is if there's a chronic global shortage of energy then the price is going to go up. And the government is either going to choose to subsidize that. And what that means is, you know, all taxpayers are going to basically pay a bit more in order to cover that cost of buying oil on, on the global markets so that the end user doesn't have to pay or, or face as big an increase as the actual price that's gone up. So that's really where we're at the moment. There's tussles going on in Whitehall and the industry about the extent of government support for the industry. But you're right, what's happened clearly is we've gone back to a world of fewer, bigger providers, less choice, and probably ultimately, you know,
0: somewhat higher prices than we've been used to paying. And the mayor, we've just been talking about how the challenger brands have been blown away really by unforeseen circumstances. Mm-hmm. Something that recurs quite often in this podcast is ethical and social and governance investing how portfolios are moving across to companies that's base their their value proposition in something more than just immediate return how do you think the energy sector is going to adapt in that way in the coming year
1: i think they've already adapted i think uh the energy sector's bright enough they've got enough money they don't want to be the dodos they don't want to be the last people they don't, sorry the first people gone so you're seeing an incredible amount of money now going into renewable energies from the companies because they've got the resources to do it they haven't just gone and spent it all and i think The energy companies will be part of the new world, however it looks. So I I don't think you need to worry about them going bust. The big boys won't be going bust. The Shells and the BPs, they'll be around. And they're just, when I speak to Dan and Mike and I listen to their sort of webinars and podcasts, you can see how they're developing into the renewable
0: energy space in very, very good ways we should talk a bit about tax uh, because that's a huge part of this cost of living crisis that uh, we're enjoying at the moment. The Resolution Foundation says that the combination of stalling wages, rising tax and energy bills is going to cost each family an average of £1,200 a year. The personal income tax allowance is going to be frozen. So more people are going to be dragged into higher tax bans. And to pay for social care, the government's increasing national insurance by 1.25 percentage points. So that's not a 1.25% increase. It's a 10% increase. From twelve percent to thirteen point two five. So we're all going to get taxed quite visibly. Again, back to personal investment, personal portfolio. Is there anything that the, the sort of personal investor can do about this kind of thing apart from earn less money and get taxed less?
2: Andy is obviously the, the expert when it comes to, to all things tax. I, I think when it from a from an investment point of view, there's, there's a couple of things I'd say. that the one is that whenever uh, any organization makes forward looking estimates you know, about the the, the cost to the, the end consumer of, of things like tax rises. But of course, it assumes a, a permanence, uh, which is not necessarily there. We've just been talking about how inflation rises and falls, wages uh, what rise and fall depending on the demand from companies, the strength of the economy and, uh, and obviously ver- various other factors. And so we need to be very careful about assuming that what's happening this year, uh, which is, is certainly a squeeze on uh, the cost of living and there's no, no doubt about that, but we need to be Careful about assuming that that goes into into the future, uh, and so the, the the situation may not be as bleak as it looks over the long term. It may be bleaker, of course. That's, that's something we need to be need to be aware of. But it's but it it, it might be might be better. And so we need to to keep an open mind about what's going to, to happen there. I think that the second thing that I say just generally with well, with taxation is that there is always a temptation to try to minimize tax. In your uh, your investment portfolio, and to really focus on tax rather than on the investment outcome, and and some people would would call this uh, the tail wagging the dog. That actually the return that you can generate from your portfolio, the, uh, the, 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 the getting the risk level right in your portfolio. Uh, is likely to be more important than the the focus on the tax. Just focusing on tax ahead of everything else can lead you into uh, some pretty unusual investments, which may not be appropriate for for everyone and can be pretty complex. So uh, whenever thinking about uh, the taxation of your portfolio, then of course uh, speak to a, a good independent financial advisor like Andy. But keep in mind that investment is much more than just tax minimization. No, I think the only thing I could add to
1: that really from from what Dan has said, he's covered it perfectly, is I think some people at the lower earnings level, the increase for social care will impact them. And I think sort of there may be some bigger credit card debts coming up in the next 12 to 24 months. But I think Dan's covered it brilliantly because just because there's a tax now or inflation here now,
0: it doesn't mean it's permanent. Before we wrap up, what do we think is going to happen to interest rates? Because obviously this, we, we've lived through you know, a decade and more of interest rates that are so historically low. that entire generations have become used to the idea that uh, interest rates will be almost invisible forever. Are they likely to go up this year? And, and what happens if they, if they don't go up in an inflationary environment? Is that going to stoke inflation further?
3: Mike, you were talking about interest rates before, so I'll I'll hand over to you. (laughs) Come on, Mike, this is yours. Sure, I'm happy to take that one. So the the things to think about when you think about interest rates are really both inflation and also how much money the government's borrowed and therefore how much interest it has to pay on those borrowings. So the reason I mention that is, firstly, the government has increased by a huge amount, the debt that it has because of the extra spending and the loss of tax revenue that occurred during the lockdowns. That increase in the amount of debt that the government's taken on also means that it now has to pay a lot more in interest, even though the interest rates, of course, are pretty low. So a small increase in interest rates flows through to quite a significant increased into government debt servicing costs so the government doesn't really want to see interest rates go up a lot because it's going to make it more expensive to fund the debt and in an economy that has a lot of debt which the UK does households as well as corporates then those households and corporates also find the impact of an increase in interest rates particularly big because they're taking on so much debt. So that means interest rates will not be going up to the extent that we saw them go up in the 1980s or even in the periods of the 1990s when they went up because the level of debt is so high that it would have a, a very big impact on the economy. It would grind it to a halt. So we're not going to see huge increases in interest rates just because of a debt. The second thing I mentioned was inflation. And here there is this raging debate about are we on the cusp of a high inflation era? And if we are on the cusp of a high inflation era and the government doesn't respond appropriately, then it will end up being the case that the economy will grow less and will all be be worse off. So the government would have some incentive to have to try and rein in inflation. So clearly the government, the Bank of England mandate is to make sure that it attains a certain low level of inflation, but it's primary mandate also to, to ensure uh, full employment and decent growth in the economy. So at the moment, its view is inflation is not going to continue to rise at the rate it has. It is, in fact, expecting inflation to go back within two years to close to being uh, the 2% that it targets. So it's flagged that there'll be some modest increase in interest rates that we will see over that period. I think that does have to happen when you get, when you get um, money that's very cheap, you end up wasting it because people just borrow the money and they don't have to get a very good return on it to cover their interest costs. And that leads to usually bad investments. So it generally isn't sustainable, but it's hard to imagine you're gonna get interest rates going back to four, five, 6% of the hmm. central bank and expectations is probably more around somewhere
0: between one and 2% as a kind of central case over the next couple of years. So my my vague thought that holding cash might be a good investment again one day is not necessarily (laughs) going to come true, is it? Well, in the long run, of course, you know, if
3: you're – Either saving to 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 accumulate money, funding your retirement, or buying a house, or or perhaps some education, then you know cash is just not going to really make much of a contribution. It still does have a role to play for people who have very short term horizons for their money, um, who can't accommodate large falls in the value of their their wealth, and so we still think that there is some role for cash, but clearly a lot less than has been the case until such point in time where we actually get interest rates
0: going up meaningfully more than what they are at the moment. Well, just to wrap up then, I mean, as you so wisely said, don't make concrete predictions because there can be lots of surprises along the way. But if I can ask you both, Mike and Dan, what sort of conversations do you think we might be having in 12 months time around these themes? I think the way we're thinking about it is that You know, it's a time to be mindful
3: of risk, Um, a long period of low interest rates and the stimulus we've seen and the recovery in corporate profits means that actually uh, when you're buying uh, financial assets like shares and property, they've gone up quite a bit already. And so for us, we're thinking more about, okay, Should I just make sure that I have something that I own which is going to do well in an environment that might not be fantastic for equities or property to provide some balance? It's not a time to reach and and chase markets and follow risk. There is some evidence of speculative activity and so it's a period of time when it's worthwhile being mindful um, of the bumps that that could well happen in markets.
2: I would absolutely endorse that and uh, just add that I think the conversation that you typically have at this time of year, every year is, my word, why didn't we see that coming? (laughs) <laughs> uh, and as you as look back, and, and that's and that's just true. You know, that that's just the the way that uh, the, the the future turns into the past. It turns into the past in a series of, of surprises. And so when uh, when we focus too much, as Mike said, on, on one outcome, uh, those surprises can be nasty. Particularly in a situation, as he said, where uh, we've had quite high prices that uh, future returns look lower than average. And so of course the idea ideal is you can get to this stage next year and say, well, we didn't expect that, but nevertheless, uh, we're still on track. For where we need to get to from a financial perspective that our goals are still in sight and coming towards us uh, because of the, uh, the the structure of the, the portfolio the planning we've done uh, the allowances we've made for that that uncertainty as opposed to saying, oh crumbs not only was that a surprise uh, but actually it's knocked us completely off off track because that's when people tend to uh, to, to lose confidence get panicked make, make bad decisions so uh, the the ideal uh, is not to uh, uh, pin your hopes on one outcome to the degree that it can uh, dominate uh, your ability to, to reach your financial goals, but rather uh, be able to get to your goals, uh, regardless of what the near term future holds.
0: Good stuff. Wise words. Everybody should bookmark this podcast and listen to it again in 12 months time to see how whether they followed the advice correctly or not. Mike Coop, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And Dan, great to talk to you. It was great. Thank you so much for having us. Andy Mayer will be back in a month's time. Are you going to have a healthy January? Are you going to lay off the boxes of celebrations and have kale for breakfast and things like that?
1: (laughs) Whenever I get out of this house, I'm going to go for a pint. But on a personal note, can I just thank Mike and Dan for taking the time? They are the top gun. They are the best of the best. They're brilliant at their job. They've got a great, great Company that they work with, but the way they are as human beings just reflects on how they work. um It's to get them on is absolutely amazing. It would be like getting Jurgen Klopp on for you, Andrew.
0: <laughs> well, if it's Top Gun, then they've clearly taken your breath away, haven't they? So thank you for joining us, Mike and Dan. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Please don't, please don't sing it. Don't forget, listeners, to follow the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you get the next edition seamlessly. Hope you've enjoyed it. I've been Andy Mayer's wingman, Andrew Harrison. We'll see you next time.